Hi, James. Ben, how are you? I'm doing good. Happy Chinese New Year. Happy Chinese New Year to you as well. Thank you. It, it is the year of the dog, and we have a new dog, and it is just a pain in the rear end. So hopefully there there isn't any uh, any sudden interruptions of this podcast recording. But we will see oh, how it goes. What kind of dog? Uh, it is a B- Bichon Frise or something. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. A puppy. Uh, she, she she is white and fluffy and and a puppy, and she already peed and pooped on on my office floor this morning. So oh, perfect. So, so yeah. So it, hopefully that's out of the way. So we don't need to worry about it <laughs> over the next hour or so. I, I'm pretty sure that's not how they work, but let's see how we go. <laughs> the mailbag episode is here, but first I want to thank WordPress.com for sponsoring Exponent. Whether you like to build a personal blog, a business site, or both, uh, relevant to perhaps some of the questions we have about about mm. society and and. What's going to happen going forward? Creating your website on WordPress.com helps others find you, remember you, and connect with you. You don't need experience. They guide you through the process from start to finish and take care of the technical side. Their customer support team is made up of WordPress experts eager to help you, and they are available 24-7. Plans start at just $4 per month, and all plans include a custom domain name for the life of your plan. So go to WordPress.com slash exponent to get 15% off your website today. That's WordPress.com slash exponent. Very good. Thank you, guys. So we are we are doing the mailbag. So we got a lot of questions, and I, I will say right up front, there's a whole bunch of questions that not only are, will we not have time to get to, but we will never get to, in part because <laughs> we already got to them. So there's folks like, can you talk about XYZ? It's like we, we've not just podcasted once about it. We've podcasted like 15 times about it. So if you have questions about Apple or Amazon or Google, things like that, even in specific areas, there's ones like Google's enterprise strategy. We, we've podcasted about that. Tesla, we podcasted about Tesla. We podcast about cryptocurrencies. We, we might mention them a little bit, but in general, stuff that we've already podcasted about. If you are a new listener, the archives are there. I encourage you to listen to them. The mm. the recording quality, I think the sound quality has been pretty good. The editing mm-hmm. was not as good earlier, so there's more ums and uhs. I listened to an early podcast a few weeks ago. It was, <laughs> it was a little rough, but we're not we're not going to re-record it, and I'm not going to re-edit it. <laughs> it is there if you want to go listen to it. Yeah, one of the tricks that when sometimes when people ask about that is if Google is amazing at turning these things up, if you type in the topic of what you're looking for and then type uh, site, S-I-T-E colon exponent.exponent, FM, it will just search exponent for that keyword. And you can often turn up episodes on topics that you're interested in. So if we're not covering things because we say we've done them before, that's that's often a good place to go look. Like there are some we've it's 140 something episodes. We've gone through a lot. We have. And also if there's stuff that and there's a couple of things where I've definitely covered on Stratechery. We're, we're probably not giving those either. I think that kind of the goal, what we were thinking about with this mailbag is kind of like more meta sort of questions, whether it be mm. about us, whether it be about careers, business schools, maybe society. I think those are the ones that would never come up normally, but we definitely mm-hmm. not only got questions in this mailbag, we've gotten questions on Twitter and, and in the past few years about topics like this. And this kind of seemed like a natural spot to to cover some of that stuff. Yep, totally. So speaking of, uh, I think this is this is probably a, a perfect question to lead into that. This is from Mohammed. Ab- Ab- oh, we're going to murder names this this episode. I apologize. Sorry, people. Uh, <laughs> Mohammed Abdij, uh, seeing as how you've both denigrated business schools multiple times on the show, could you each share how business school helped you augment <laughs> your view of business models and technology? It's kind of funny how we're both products of uh, we're both products of MBA programs, and uh, the impression that Muhammad has gotten is that we have we are denigrating business schools on the whole. Um, I'm not necessarily. Sh- I mean, I I would be cautious as I always would about recommending wholesale that someone goes and just does an MBA for the hell of it. But there are certain circumstances where it makes sense. I came from the, you know, I grew up reading about tech. And I wasn't really into the business or the business world at all. And I kind of adopted the tech general mindset that MBAs are worthless. And the, really the only reason I got an MBA was I was like an English teacher in, in Asia and it was the shortest, fastest route to legitimacy in the US job market, mm-hmm. which, and and honestly, like you could start there with why business school is valuable. It, and this get, this kind of touches on some of the questions about education in general. Like there is an aspect where the job of like certifying and sorting the general populace is kind of outsourced to schools it, it, where it doesn't really matter what your grades are. It matters that you have a degree from Harvard in your case or a degree from Kellogg in my case. And that's sufficient evidence that, that this person is at least competent and somewhat smart and we can focus in our interview process and whatnot on other aspects of the person that that aren't 
that, that are, the, the schools have already taken care of a lot of stuff. Yeah, I mean, totally. I, this was exact. You and I had exactly the same problem in this sense. Um, you probably had a, a lot more exposure to America, being American, but um, you'd been out of the country. I'd never really worked or had any exposure to the country. And you send in a resume, and there are all these schools and and employers that people don't really know anything about, and they are getting inundated with all these requests to. To, to work there and like it's just a case of you have too many to sort through and you're just going to look for quick ways of getting through even if it means that you filter a few good people out it's just not worth finding needles in haystacks at that point you've got to find some way of filtering otherwise it's just too many people to go through so from that perspective i mean i think business school was it was a huge payoff for me i mean i i it was because being at business school i was introduced to the team at apple university they like we visit there on they had like a tech track where you visit different companies and they presented and i followed up and that's how i ended up being there and once i you know even even then i mean it's no panacea i mean i applied to every tech company for an internship and most didn't even call me back. I did a little better the second year, but that was really now because I had Apple on the resume, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and unfortunately that's just, you're right. That's just the way the world works. And it's not ideal. I mean, I would have gone to work for any tech company in the Valley uh, when I was coming out of business school and the vast majority wouldn't even give me the time of day. And I like to rant and rave about that on Twitter about how hiring processes and following formulas gets you formulaic candidates. And it's probably a little unfair. It's unfair in two directions. One, a lot of smart and innovative inventive people do come up through the traditional channels and, and, and so I'm not denigrating them. And two, you're right. Like it, it, there is an aspect of of there's so many people out there and these jobs and companies are so desirable to work for that if you don't have some sort of like algorithmic way to to whittle down the pile, it's it's just it's it's kind of untenable. But I do think by and large, companies could do a better job of finding folks that are not in the traditional that don't come up through the traditional sort of routes and they would benefit greatly by doing so. And, and again, it's, it's one thing for me to say, I get, I'm a, you know, a, a white male or whatever. It's not an underrepresented from that perspective, but certainly I can, I can at least relate to the idea of basically not even being on the radar of these companies in part because I didn't go through traditional channels. And, and I certainly think there are lots of qual. I like to think I'd be a qualified candidate for most tech companies to, to, to work for them. <laughs> and unfortunately, like I said, I didn't even get interviews. So certainly there's, there's an opportunity for improvement, I would say. I actually want to talk a little bit more about some of the downsides of going into the MBA program before covering the upsides. And one of those, which only kind of compounds what you were just talking about, is lots of people come in with previous work experience to an MBA program, and then they're applying for summers and they're applying for full-time jobs. And invariably, the reason, part of the reason people are in an MBA program is they want to change something. They probably want to, at the very least, change employer, but maybe even switch industry. And the challenge is that people want to they want a job, they want good experience, but there's almost like this game of musical chairs and uh, you don't want to be caught without uh, a job when the music stops. So you apply to everywhere and invariably you end up getting the most interviews doing the things that you've done in the past. And so does everybody else. And it's this weird uh, uh, me- sorting mechanism where you end up, well, I don't want to end up without a job. So I'm going to apply. I was doing consulting before. Maybe I should just apply to consulting as well and then the consulting firms see you and they're like oh you have consulting experience or product or or marketing people like want to get out of marketing but they apply to the marketing firms and then people crowd out their classmates a little bit and it's also further compounded by the fact that there's a little bit of a herd mentality that happens inside of business schools the big employers come to campus uh, people see everything. They think they begin to think that the only jobs available are the jobs in the job bank, so to speak. They don't think, oh, what else might I like, or what what would make me happy? What what could I apply to or think about doing that's not in the job bank before they go looking? And they end up in this kind of tunnel vision and following the herd. And it, it can the environment itself, I feel like, can lead you in down the wrong path if you're not careful when you're inside of it. Yeah, I agree. Andrew Connolly asked, how would you evaluate whether or not someone with an interest in a tech career ought to pursue an MBA? Is it, you know, elite school or bus useful for more mature tech companies, not early stage ones, any general musings MBAs? Well, you're getting the general musings here for sure. But I think you're touching on something really important. One is 
you really have to understand the industry that you want to work in. Like if you want to, if you want to go into finance or if you want to go into consulting or you want to go into be a brand manager for like a, a, in marketing or something like that, then an MBA, it, it's, it's kind of you kind of have to do it it's just kind of a it's part of the career ladder for these industries and it's just it's a, it's a rite of passage in many respects and and here the uh and it certainly really pays off in this respect to go to the more elite school the better i mean i think there's mm-hmm. you're gonna learn basically the same stuff at any business school you go to i think i mean within reason i mean if it's in a top 50 or whatever school they're probably teaching mostly the same stuff it, and people look at this and they look at this in the context of education generally like well this should be so easy to disrupt well that's because that's a misunderstanding of the job these companies do again there's this sorting mechanism and mm. this status of uh, that is that is given by a particular school that actually has almost nothing to do with the content that you're learning. It's not like you learn business better at Harvard as opposed to Kellogg or at Wharton as opposed to Chicago. It's it's just it's that you got into one of the top top five schools and that that says something about your qualifications for a particular job and, and and so that that's a key thing. In tech, though, I think it's very different because tech has that sort of distrust or or suspiciousness of MBAs, I think generally that that you know flows a lot from the dot-com era when MBAs kind of flooded in and really didn't care about the technology at all or just there to to make money. And you kind of see that again, like where you know the kind mm-hmm. of the surest the surest sign of a bubble is when MBAs yeah, are flowing to that industry. And 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 I think that's fair. And and to I think to tax credit, it's frustrating as an MBA when you graduate and the fact that you have an MBA doesn't really mean anything. Like you are competing against someone that very well have not even graduated high school, but they have like tons of experience and they're really good at what they do. And I think the the majority of, of tech companies are generally pretty good about not getting hung up on an MBA specifically. They do get hung up on the on the quality of school. That, that's just kind of a, a case in general. But but in tech, you should get an MBA specifically because there is stuff you want to learn. I think the, the idea that it's going to really help you in your career, if you're already in tech, I don't think it really does that much. Now, if you're outside of tech, like me, it, it was a huge help. Again, because mm-hmm. But only for big companies, like the big companies, like Microsoft hires a lot of MBAs, Amazon hires a bunch of MBAs. Uh, uh, they they are a way into the industry, but you're going into more business centric roles for just product management in general is much more. You have to be much more technical, I think, with, yeah. with tech companies than in other industries. There are exceptions to that, but generally that that product management thing is true. And I remember my time at Apple, I was given endless shit about my MBA Um the fact that I was doing MBA on the East Coast, I was reminded of this fact and not necessarily in a positive light on a regular basis. I would, uh, to your point about the sorting mechanism and how tech views it, it's interesting because the the more able you're able to quantify someone's ability easily, the less important that sorting mechanism becomes. And for things like engineering, you can have great engineers that haven't necessarily graduated school. It, as you move more into the fuzzier subjects and this more social science type subjects like business effectively, the, the stamp becomes comes much more helpful like it's it's a way of sorting whereas otherwise it can be very hard to figure out who's good and who's not beyond a past track record the other thing i would say to your point is actually i think if you're in tech and you're enjoying your career you don't want to switch i actually think that going and getting an mba could well be value destructive. And I've heard of people that were happy in their jobs, but thought they ought to go and do this. They spend two years out and they come back and they are sorely disappointed. Sometimes can't even get into their own, their old companies. I, uh, ran into a, uh, a, an individual from Google who had a job that he was happy with, but thought he needed to go do this and then came back two years later and Google's, the, the job wasn't there and he's, he's had trouble. He's had trouble getting in. So I would say if you're in tech and you like tech, do not feel that you need to go do this. I, I don't think it is required. I, yeah, I agree. And one, one more thing, if you want to do strategy specifically, the big tech companies that actually have strategy teams, and again, startups don't have strategy teams. Like It's the big established <laughs> companies. But they primarily, ex- almost exclusively hire uh, consultants. So mm-hmm. in, in this case, a business school is a good path because it will get you, it's the probably the, the best path to get into the consulting. But it, but again, the best way is you want to be a top five school, top three consulting firm. It just, it's one of those paths where, it, it, like it is what it 
it is. And and that is also where like corporate strategy teams from the big tech companies will primarily hire from. Anyhow, we are getting very much into the weeds. I think though, just to articulate, I I found I ended up finding business school to be extremely valuable for me. Mm. And it was valuable in a way that schooling, I think, in the best way should be valuable. Like I actually learned a lot. And, yeah. and I think what happened from my perspective is I went to business school to get a job. And it turned out that a lot of this business stuff, I actually had a pretty good knack for. And I had a good sort of understanding of how the world worked and stuff like game theory and 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 strategic decision making and all those sorts of things. And what business school really did was give me a sort of language to talk about a lot of this stuff, really refine some of my understanding of the finer details, whether it be in accounting, which was surprisingly compel- a surprisingly compelling subject, or things like, you know, understanding marginal costs and and, and decision-making when it comes to marginal versus fixed costs, stuff that we've talked about in this podcast. All that stuff I certainly learned at business school. And again, a lot of it I kind of knew, but but to really crystallize it, and it's kind of like a, a shape that is roughly in the shape of a sculpture, but to, to, to kind of chip off all the edges and where something much more clear and articulate sort of emerges. I mm. certainly got that from business school and and it was certainly a great choice for me. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I did the negatives before. I would say I loved it. I, I love academic environments in the same way that I love talking to you on this podcast every every week. It was it was like catnip getting to wake up every morning, particularly when you're in the period where, well, the part of the, the court, the, the year where you were picking elective subjects. And I would be waking up every morning and I would go into class and I would get to discuss something like this that I would love to do. And it, it, from that sense, it was fantastic. And you learn so much from disruption to how to negotiate. You, I also found that I learned a whole bunch of soft skills that I wasn't expecting. I, I learned how to listen properly. Like half the grade at business school, uh, well, at least at, at Harvard, was based on participation. And you can't participate well in class if you know exactly what you're going to say before you walk in. You have to listen and build on the conversation. And and realizing that I didn't really know how to listen, that was a surprise to me, but I had to learn how to do it. And empathy for people too, because you you get to know the folks that you go through with very, very well. And it's easy to dismiss people that you disagree with uh, when you're outside in the world, like the, the filter bubbles type stuff. And you see people that have a, an opposing point of view and that, oh, they're just idiots. They don't understand. But when, when they're your friends, when they're people that you've gotten to know really well and they say something that's completely counter to what you believe or what you were thinking, it stops you in your tracks and it really encourages you to think about the world from a very different perspective. So there are a bunch of really soft skills, uh, very valuable soft skills that I learned. And finally, I, I like I made a bunch of friends and great, great friends. And it's it's two years where you get to go out of the workforce, but it doesn't look like a two-year gap in your resume, which was also something that there aren't many opportunities to do something like that. Uh, so I loved it. It's a lot of fun. I mean, it really is. I mean, you 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 get a chance to do you know, I, I didn't do as much of the like travel and trips and stuff like that, in part just because I had a family and, and you know, I was very nervous about the amount of debt I was taking on. Mm. It, it is expensive. And I think, you know, doing a proper, you know, for me, I did get a huge salary lift, like they were advertised because I was going from being in Taiwan to working, you know, for, you know, for, for a big tech company. But, you know, thinking about the foregone salary and the amount of debt is certainly mm-hmm. something to keep in mind. And I think, yeah. but I think there's one other thing here. There, here's a, uh, I like this question. Nice, short and simple. This is, this is a great mailbag question from, from Proton State of what are your most healthy habits? And uh, one thing that's interesting about, about business school is I came to appreciate one very healthy trait that I have that I think made the experience uh, better. And that's really the ability to say no to mm. like the amount of opportunities and stuff you can do. I mean, let's make, let's, let's be honest. We were both incredibly privileged and lucky to have gone mm-hmm. to these top business schools. And, and the choices are not like choosing between a bad option and a good option. It's choosing between a, a veritable flood of, of phenomenal options. And one thing you pick up, like I would love to, if I was doing hiring, I would honestly like to see the person that I'm hiring, what their first semester schedule looked like. And, mm. and anyone that was dramatically overbooked and trying to do everything, I would just totally avoid because it, there's there's so many like I think something that that I I 
honed certainly at business school and has been useful in general is just be able to say no like i'm not going to do that that looks cool that looks fun but that doesn't fit my current priorities of what i'm working mm. on and so i'm going to say no to that and uh i think that's something that is that business school very much brought home to me but has served me well i think generally I totally agree with that, but I'm laughing because if you'd seen my first semester schedule, I made a conscious decision at the start to say yes to everything, and I, I, I kind of realized. And now I'm working with you. I can't believe yeah, there it. There you go. I know. I was like, I know this isn't sustainable, but I want to try as many things and meet as many people as possible. And I think part of the reason, though, why I enjoyed the second year the most was because you start to opt into the things that you're interested in, and you also learn that you can't keep doing that you must say no and in in knocking out the things like you just focus on the things that you love and spending time with the people that you love and whatever and it makes for a better experience this ties into another sort of meta question which is how would you define strategy and that's from uh, andrew belay ben before we move on are there any other habits that you want to talk about i feel like that's there are probably other things that people could i i'm curious about you actually like what other habits beyond saying no do you have that like make you effective <laughs> my, my life is a series of hacks where the the single people think i think i might have said this before but think people think i'm insanely productive and the reality is is that i i have a daily deadline for five, five days a week for four mm. four posts and a podcast and if i don't get it done then I am failing all my <laughs> thousands of bosses who, who are who are the people that are pay, paying my paycheck, and so I, this is one of the things I, I I did a post a little bit ago about why well, I'm not going to write a book, or at least in the immediate near term. There's also a selfish aspect where I think I would be a disaster at writing a book because like it, it's not it's not due tomorrow it's not due in six hours. Mm-hmm. But, you know, some days you don't feel it, and like you feel lazy, and there's stuff going on. I was moving this week. Yesterday we had the Chinese New Year dinner, and I was going to take yesterday off, but because I took the day off for the move i felt guilty so i did a post yesterday which i know i know i'll get people saying don't worry about it i need to take more time off like the the, the moment i stop feeling guilty about taking days off mm-hmm. is the moment that i think i've lost it you know what i mean <laughs> like there's there, there, like there has to be a sort of healthy fear and drive and and you know what i sat down and i got it done and and often it's the ones that are feel the most painful that i feel end up feeling wow that turned out really great and mm. so it's, it's a hack like there's a sort of forcing mechanism that I have my life. And a lot of my life is like this. I mean, I think the trade-off of being a sort of big picture systematic thinker is one tends to struggle with the details and and the bits and pieces of day-to-day mm. life. And, and like, I, I do stuff like I set alarms all the time, right? Like there was a, uh, when I drive my daughter to school, I and mean, one of the reason we moved is we're back within walking distance of her school, which is, which is very nice. But before I drive her to school and my wife had asked me that if it's raining, that if I would also drive back and take my son to school, because he was going to a different school. And if not, then, then she, she would take him on the scooter, which is a totally reasonable request, right? Except that I would be driving home and I'd be, you know, I'd have a quick look at the headlines of the day. I'd be thinking about what I was going to write about, what was going on in the day. And it would just, I would just space out. I space out all the time. Like I'm a very, I can't multitask at all. I'm a very sort of one track sort of, sort of thinker. And so what, I, what did I do? I set an alarm that goes off every day at 7.55 a.m. that says check if it's raining. And, and like that, it sounds totally ridiculous, but you know, it's sort of like there's an aspect of people spend so much trying time trying to fix their weaknesses. Mm. And I, it's such a mistake. What you want to do is you want to put yourself in a position to accentuate where you can maximize your strengths and mm. then you want to ameliorate your weaknesses so that they don't get in your way. And you know what? It sounds dumb that I set an alarm every day, but now I have a habit, but now every day I have a habit. It's not a mm. habit that comes from internally. It's a habit forced on me by my phone, but it's a habit all the same to make sure that if it's running, I pick up my son. Totally. I, that habit thing is so awesome. But before I, I want to come back to that, but beforehand, it's so funny because in this sense, we're almost opposite. Like I work, I did work on a book and it is, I loved it because of the flexibility that it afforded you. And I realized that there are days where I am hyper productive. I will, everything is just gold. And then there are days where nothing good would come out. And I would try forcing myself in those days and I'd end up having, I'd slog through it. And then I'd end up having to come back and rewrite the whole thing anyway, because it was so terrible. So I'm, I'm almost at the opposite extreme. I like having that flexibility and I've learned to listen to myself and say, oh, hey, like today's one of those days. Let's like, I can feel it. And when that happens, you drop everything. Like it doesn't matter what you've got scheduled. If you're in one of those moods where you're going to do good work, you would drop everything just to make sure you, you, you get it out there. And on the other hand, 
Uh, if, if it was something, if you felt like you weren't going to do it, then just let it slide. And that's why I prefer not having the daily deadline. The other thing I realized while doing it was the impact that environment can have on you. I tried working in an office and it just wasn't prompting creativity. But if you put me in a coffee shop, I would just be able to do it much more easily. Same with pen and paper versus actually typing on a keyboard. First draft, I would often write things out by hand and it would just make it that much easier for it to flow. And you, you begin to learn those little tweaks that like bring out the best in you. In terms of habits, for me though, the one thing is exercise. I I just find I am a better human being to be around. I think better. I sleep better. Everything if I get some exercise in every day. So it's like the one thing that every day, I, as a habit, I really try not to compromise on. It's interesting because I, I really am the opposite of you. And I go to a coffee shop and I just end up dinking around on Twitter the entire time. But, <laughs> but, but again, but that's where this sort of forcing function also comes in. If I, mm. if, if I have to get a daily update done, I can write anywhere. I've written daily updates on airplanes. I've written a ton of daily updates on airplanes, actually. Uh, I've written daily updates in coffee shops. I've written daily updates sitting in my car on the side of the road using my phone as, as, as a connection. Oh, wow. I've written, I've written, what's the most, what's the craziest place I've written a daily update? There, I, I do definitely find if I'm stuck doing, like just, just doing, Doing something else, like going for a walk or going for a drive or whatever it might be, will will loosen, will will like un- unfree stuff. That that certainly mm. works. But yeah, it, I I don't know. It, I think for me, it, it's just weird. Like I know people ask me, how do I like? How can I write every day? How can I be so productive and write so much stuff? And in part, it really it's because it's a habit. Like I'm in a habit mm-hmm. of writing every day, and that's just what I do. The other thing that honestly, that's kind of it's not. It's not really actionable. I just have a really good memory. And people are like, oh, how do you draw connections between like these these like different things? Like, mm. I don't know. I just I just remember it. So honestly, if if I don't burn out, where I will actually lose it is when my memory goes. And believe me, as someone who just moved house and has a daughter who who has a memory that is scarily more accurate than me because she's young and I'm old, uh, that that day is probably coming sooner than I want to admit. Very good. So the you know the reason why I want to transition earlier to strategy is because I think people think about strategy as this sort of corporate strategy thing, and the reality is is I think strategy is a it's a way of making decisions, and mm-hmm. it applies not just to big companies, but it applies to your your day to day life Us. and just the, yeah absolutely. And, and what I mean is, uh, you know, the reason I was going to tie it to that saying no. Is that is like that? Those were strategic decisions. Like for me, my strategy in business school was to get a job in technology, and it followed then that everything that I thought about, I viewed through that prism. Now that isn't what I did not do, and what I did this when I was young, when I was in college. I think I've told this the anecdote that I switched majors multiple times. I would reschedule every class I was going to take, like every single time. And at the end, I'm like, this is dumb. I just took classes from great professors, and obviously, you know, as you might imagine, had a great experience. Mm-hmm. So, the, the, like, strategy is not like sketching out every single step along the path. What it is is understanding and sort of defining where you are going and setting priorities such that not mm. just you, but everyone under you can make decisions in an yeah. appropriate way. You you like just you can't make decisions in a vacuum. You if you have an well understood list of priorities. This is our number one priority. This is our guiding star star. This is what matters more than anything. Then then next is number two, number three, and they're not all they can't all be the same level. They have to be distinct levels. But if you if you have articulated that well and you've communicated that down the chain, then what happens is people start making good strategic decisions up and down the organization because the priorities are clear. And so what strategy really is at the highest level is setting that that priority order. I love prioritization and I don't think I really actually understood it until business school. It's this the the forcing mechanism because it's so easy to say, "Oh, let's be good at this and oh, let's be good at that and we'll be good at everything." But it's you can't be. And and in choosing to do a whole bunch of things without even realizing it. And this is the trap many people fall into. They're choosing not to do something else, but you don't see that the hidden choice. You only, "Oh, I'll just do this and oh, I'll just do that." And the the prioritization approach is just something that I I think is just a fantastic way, not just about thinking about businesses, but thinking about life too. Like you go through the process. And this was one of the things that kind of clicked for me when working on um, how will you measure your life with Professor Christensen is set the priorities. You have this 
implicitly, you're going to have a strategy for your life, for example, whether you like it or not. Look at, look at the way you're allocating your resources and figure out whether it's consistent with the strategy that you want. And his insight was looking at all his classmates who graduated from business school. They had this strategy to go off and be happy and successful, but they were allocating their resources in a way that weren't causing them to do that. They would, they would spend all their time at work. They wouldn't spend time with their families and they thought they could get away with it. And gradually, one by one, they wouldn't show up at their reunions. It's like this notion of making sure you have your priorities clear in your mind and then you're making a prioritization or a resource allocation decision that is consistent with that is just it's 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 like one of the ways i think about the world and it's not just through a business lens it's through a personal lens as well that's right because there's lots of quote-unquote strategic decision making that isn't strategy at all it's like obviously you're going to do that i've talked about this in the context of like a strategy credit right people talk about strategy taxes where a company does something suboptimal for one product because it's favoring another one but there's mm-hmm. other options where you do things that we've talked about the context of apple like focusing on on privacy well given their business model it's not it's <laughs> not it's it's great it's a good thing to push particularly from a marketing perspective but it's a completely different kettle of fish than Google or Facebook doing the same sort of thing given they're in advertising their advertising businesses like and so strategy is really about how do you make those sort of like trade-offs and and again it, it's it's a high level sort of thing where what matters in the case of Apple and this is where other stuff flows into it things like organizational structure and, mm-hmm. and, and design and this is where like for example when I wrote about Apple that I believe they should set up a separate division for services and this this is a strategic question, but it's a strategic question that gets at a much more high level of what's the framework within which decisions are being made. Because in Apple as it is, the guiding principle, that North Star, is delivering the the, the best possible product possible, the, the end product. And my point in that article is that that prioritization order is fundamentally incompatible with building best-in-breed services. And therefore, the appropriate action would be to set up a separate organization such that you can have separate priority stacks. And and, and that's sort of in, in th- that strategy. Like that is it's thinking through what are we trying to accomplish here? What goes into letting that happen? And stuff doesn't happen by chance. And uh, we mentioned in passing last week that that question about do these companies really think about this stuff? And of course they, they, they absolutely this is what this is what high level like being a this is why you get paid tens of millions of dollars to be a to be Tim Cook or to be whatever it might be because you're making these sorts of decisions you're not making people think about it so in terms of the product in their hands but the product in the hands is the product of thousands of decisions mm. made by thousands of people and what your job as a CEO or to be an executive is to set the framework such that people make decisions repeatedly in the way that you would make them if you were there. And, and, yeah. and that's what it's all about. Yeah. And uh, eventually, if you do this consistently and well enough, it starts to feed into the culture of an organization, particularly early on in the organization's growth. And that culture is is part of what allows you to effectively have a hand in every decision that is made up and down the organization without you being there. Because otherwise, it's just not possible. That's exactly right. And that's why it, it, it is hard for organizations to change. That's why like they get disrupted. Because the it, it, this isn't a bad thing. This idea that people make decisions that the founder or CEO would make if they were there, but they just do without even under fully understanding why mm-hmm. they're doing it, that is critical. That's the only way a company can scale to be large to 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 yeah. seize a sort of opportunity in the market. So that has to happen. The flip side, though, is when the market changes, yeah. you have this sort of ossified structure that is already used to making decisions a certain way. And to force a change in decision-making, a change in that mindset, is that's what's so brutally difficult about changing your business model, about changing mm-hmm. what you do. And in many respects, strategic decision-making is knowing what you can't do. Like you, you might be able to f- to form the perfect strategy mm-hmm. about oh, Microsoft should sell a tablet with with its own version of Windows on it, right? And that totally flops. Why? Because all the different pieces were not in place such that it could be executed. You can't just decide we're going to be Apple. That it doesn't yeah. work that way. 
the the separate organization point that you had is right, but uh, it's also a reason why, and this is something we've touched on, is why if you can't build it or you don't think you can build it or it's going to take too long to build it, this is a reason why you might acquire an organization that looks very different from yours and then hold it separate. Because if you take those resources or you take those people and you bring them into your own organization, they get infused in that culture. The priorities get all messed up and you destroy something valuable that you have. And that's why You'll see instances where well-run acquisitions will actually, they'll be purchased and they'll be left separate to do their own thing away from the core of the acquiring company. That, that, yeah, that's exactly right. I think this ties into a, one more business school question. What do you think that business schools could be doing more for aspiring mm. entrepreneurs? If so, what do you think they should do and why? And and in terms of making students more entrepreneurial, what subject matter should business schools be focusing on more? I think this has the cart in front of the horse. Uh, I, th- I, I I am very – I mean this was a, probably a big thing at, at Harvard when you were there. I'm not sure. It was a big thing when Cal was there. We're going to have an entrepreneurial program and we have entrepreneur these, these classes for entrepreneurs. And <laughs> – I think that business school is incidental to entrepreneurism to the to the extent that it is. I mean, the, the reality is is that business schools are very much tied up in the sort of old world order of these big international corporations that are, you know, executing understood strategies. And business school prepares you to go into that and execute, you know, the way the way that it's always been done. I mean, think about the very idea of a case study. The idea is you can look at a company in the way they approached mm. it previously and you can extrapolate lessons from that that will presumably be useful going forward. And and there and that's I think that's that's fine. I do question the extent to which that sort of preparation lends itself to creating something truly unique and new. I mean, there are some types of businesses if you just want to build a a like there's a horizontal sort of innovation which is you look at what's happening in one country and you do it in another country or in one geography and you do it in another geography or one product and you do it with a different product and and you're just taking a sort of understood approach and playbook and applying it somewhere else. And that's a very valid and powerful form of entrepreneurship. But there's another form which is creating completely new business models, completely new products and thinking through those implications. Like I don't think that business school helped me in the formation of strategy. Like there, like if anything, what I might have learned from business school would have counseled me to not start a company like strategy. Mm. So I mean, that's not to pat myself on the back. It's just to say that the the role of a business school, I think, is is not necessarily fully aligned with with that sort of entrepreneurship. That's true. I guess I guess the two counterpoints would be one of the things that the case study method, which is a large a large proportion of the pedagogy of what of of how you will learn at business school, is that it becomes about making decisions. And if there is one thing that is consistent between the old world and the new world, like if you want to be an executive inside of one of these organizations you will have to get really good at making decisions with imperfect information on a regular basis. Now, from the perspective of are all the frameworks holding up when you start, if you think about them as these, um, as these uh, formulas that we've described and you start to zero it as a result of the internet, like is learning about the past the best way of going into the future and developing the products for the future? Probably not. Is building the muscle of having to make decisions in an environment with imperfect information a useful thing to do? Yeah, actually, I would say it is. The second thing that I would say that a lot of business schools are doing, and it started at HBS as I was leaving, was actually forcing students to go out and start businesses, even if they're not legitimate, like it's not going to be a a Facebook or whatever. It's like go through the process of coming up with an idea, work with people, go and register a company, go and speak to accountants, go and speak to lawyers, all that kind of thing. And it sounds silly, but the friction, particularly if you're a first-time entrepreneur, the friction around doing that and whether you've done it before, it's it's actually having some guide rails uh, to do it the first time so you get a sense of what it's like. So it demystifies it a little bit for you and you go through the process and you, you see, oh, actually, these are things you need to be careful of at the start when you work with other founders because if you don't put these agreements in place, arguments can happen and so on and so forth. I actually think there's some value in that. Of course, probably not as much as actually going and starting a business. But if you're looking for a low stakes environment in which to to learn how to do it, plus all the other stuff that business school offers, I can see the value. The big thing I would I would agree with you on there is the 
it kind of goes back to the saying no sort of thing, like getting practice at making decisions and and mm. being able to deal with uh, you know imprecise data or or in, in, you know not not knowing enough. I think I think that's exactly right. But it's you can also get that sort of practice and experience without you know mm-hmm. spending six figures. <laughs> is, 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 is is the, the you might the even be would, earning six say. figures while you get it right? Exactly. So. So, somehow we've managed to turn this into a good 40 minutes on business school. Which, and there we, were which bunch- we've been wanting to do all along. So uh, yeah. thank you to our, to our questioners for enabling us. In, in fairness, there were a lot of questions about that and career-related ones. So I hope people found that helpful. But uh, to change tack a little bit, there was a question from uh, Stephen Sommer that I really, really liked, which was, um, governments often talk about creating the next Silicon Valley. This has been a particularly frequent talking point for politicians in Australia. Uh, ding, no, ding, no, ding. Wonder, no wonder you like Ex- it. Exponent bingo. Someone just won. Over the last 10 years across all levels of government, what should governments do to foster a culture of entrepreneurship in a city, state, country and help startups grow? I'm going to guess that another government-funded school of entrepreneurship isn't the answer. He almost read our minds in terms of where we're coming <laughs> from in this topic. Yeah, no, there, there, we had a couple questions on this too. Cole Healy also asks, almost every city in the world wants the next Silicon Valley or, uh, of its region. What are the necessary building blocks for a city? And I think that that is getting a little more towards the answer. Where if to go back to sort of strategic decision making, a lot mm. of it is about creating the conditions for good decisions to occur. And that whether that be you know the the organizational structure, whether it be the incentives, all those sorts of pieces that go into you know managing a large corporation. If you think about it in terms of a region, you don't decree that th- this is going to be Silicon Valley. You don't decree <laughs> that innovation should happen, and you certainly don't like sketch out this is what you should innovate on, and here's here's your mm-hmm. sort of you know your your marching orders. What you can do is create the conditions, and the the truth is when you start getting to the nuts and bolts of the conditions that are necessary. Uh, governments get a whole lot more hesitant in part because a lot of the conditions that are critical are are at least in the short term quote unquote bad for the established companies and the established people in that region so a a classic example is no compete clauses one of the most important features of silicon valley is that california has a ban on no competes mm. which mean which is terrible for companies view it as being terrible for their business. Oh, you mean that my employee can just walk out the door with all the knowledge in his head and go to the competitor next door and work? That's exactly what they can do in California. And it is critical to why Silicon Valley is what it is. People don't stay in the same job. They circle around. And in, in the in the long run, this is actually positive because the, the way that knowledge circulates and everyone is building on the same pieces and they're climbing up each other's shoulders to go faster and faster and, and innovate more and more as opposed to being locked into silos like this is the same sort of argument about open versus close that you we've had any number of times and here it applies to on, on a statewide level and, and but why doesn't it happen well if a government if a government comes along and says we're going to enact a ban on no compete clauses guess who raises holy hell the established companies and people that are there and they start lobbying and pushing back against it and saying it's bad for competition, you're going to kill us, et cetera, et cetera. And then it never ends up happening. And mm-hmm. I think is what, what, what I find so compelling about this is Silicon Valley and California generally has so many things going against it. I mean, the weather is great, but the, the, the government's a mess. The, it, it's super in debt. Like there's all sorts of crazy regulations around all sorts of things. And yet, it is this thriving economy, particularly in the Valley, and I think it's because they got this one regulation really, really right. And it's so underappreciated and critical to fostering a truly innovative sort of environment, and and so and so few other countries or states or regions are willing to follow their lead. It's such a great example. Uh, it's that that example touches on something that we've talked about so much, which is the silent screams of all the the businesses that don't get formed as a result of uh, the stifling effects of regulation and what happens when you listen to incumbents. Which in this case, and this is why we're not anti-regulation. This is a regulation, right? Yeah. That you can't have these agreements. And and so we're not anti-regulation. What we're against is is things that don't fully consider the unintended consequences, to to your point. Totally. 
Good. Yes. Excellent clarification. There's a professor by the name of Michael Porter, who's most famous for his work on five forces, but he actually did a bunch of work on this topic and he called it cluster theory. And it's more explanatory than it is predictive, but these hubs start to form like something sparks it and then things start and then you start almost start to build up. It's almost like network effects in a region where you, you have, you have one thing and then a supplier comes along and then it starts attracting talent. And if you think about network effects or how some of even some of these businesses that we've talked about, like the big four have developed aggregation type effects, it's the same kind of thing that spins it up. And then once you have these effects working for you, it becomes very hard to compete. And so this is what I find frustrating about people who think about, oh, we should just do the next Silicon Valley. Instead, I think a much better approach for regions is to think about where they have an edge in something, whether it's winemaking or if you think about DC wanting to do, to build a startup scene, don't just try and replicate Silicon Valley. Recognize, okay, this is the seat of government. It's going to have lots of work focused on government, perhaps on defense or aerospace. Like if you're going to focus entrepreneurship, focus on something where you have an edge as a region as opposed to just trying to replicate what someone else has done because you're you're never going to out Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley, but you might have something unique about your circumstance that you can build on to create something entirely different. What I definitely agree with is focus on your strengths, accentuate your strengths. But I think mm. there, there's still an aspect of governments really want ideas that are at no cost to them. And, mm. and, and I, that's why like another thing that I would go back to is you like real estate, for example, right? I think the real estate issues in California are, are, are a significant long-term problem for the Valley. I think almost like the best possible outcome is that it's fully gentrified and boring. And, and, and the worst is that like, Employees just can't live and work in the in the region anymore, and they, and they have no choice but to go elsewhere. But the, why does why why is it not fixed? The reason it's not fixed is because the people who actually vote, who vote in the politicians that make the policies, are the people who are already there. And, and mm-hmm. how do you make decisions that attract people who aren't already there? That it's it's one of the best possible examples of how the unintended consequences on the businesses that aren't formed, in this case, the people that don't move there or have moved out are, are just so difficult to, to sort of, to sort of overcome. Yeah. The irony is it's almost the inverse of what you just said. You said like part of the advantage that, that Silicon Valley has is the non-competes and that allows people to just walk out. And this is almost the inverse. Like if one is so beneficial to employees, like they can take what they've learned and start something else or go somewhere else. It's almost like the, there's a drag that's, that's of a similar nature, which is like the real estate has been so poorly managed that it makes it that much harder for them to come there in the first place. So it's, it's interesting that there are two factors pulling in opposite directions, but they're the same kinds of factors. The other thing I mentioned in passing is California's great weather. Like that, 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 that that's a good thing. Like uh, having a place that people like to be mm. is is one thing that governments really really can do. Whether that be investing in transportation infrastructure, having nice parks, having good schools, having affordable housing. Like these are all like people want to live in a place that that they enjoy living in. And I, I it feels like a lot of I don't know. I guess I I'm just generally skeptical of so many of these top down sort of programs that are that define this is what this region is going to be good at mm-hmm. we are going to you know pour money and, and give tax breaks to these various items and and the goal here the the goal in general is to unleash human creativity human ingenuity and and the way to do that is not to dictate what that ingenuity should be that that it kind of completely misses the point it's to create the conditions such that ingenuity can flourish and can take root and can grow into something substantial and i think this sort of you know segues into an, a, another another question uh, we got this question from hugo voss about basic income and he mentioned that i had i had said previously in a previous episode that i I wish there were solutions to rapidly iterating AI displacing employees beyond a basic income, just giving people money. The solution you ultimately propose, and this is his question, something the runway, smoothing the runway to a bottom-up solution for productivity is interesting, but do you think basic income would help or hinder this process? And I think this gets at sort of big picture, like how do we create that sort of that sort of economy of the future? And the way that I would think about basic income is there's an aspect where I do believe having sort of forcing functions in life is useful and where where I think it's, I think it's useful and productive for people to, to work like work 
is, is isn't great. It, it's it can be boring, but there is an aspect of going out and getting a job because you need a job is not just good for society, but also I think it's good for people personally. Like it, it gives you know, I'm trying to get a little fuzzy, you know, getting sort of very meta about this, but you know, having forcing functions. I think is good and it, it drives us, I think, to our better selves. Like if, if it was just up to me, if I didn't have to write a daily update every day, I would just not write very often. And, you know, it's certainly great that I am well compensated for doing so, but and, and I certainly get a lot of fulfillment from writing the daily update. And even on those days, I really don't want to. And I just push through and I do it anyway. Like I said, often those end up being ones I end up really liking but I still needed the forcing function to get it done. Like that's my job and I, and I need to do it. And so I think sort of at a sort of meta level, having a sort of forcing function where it, again, it's not, it is a good thing on the flip side. I think to live like we are barbarians and you should have to get a job. So you don't go bankrupt when your kid gets sick is like we've it's, it's 2018. We don't need to live that way anymore. And yes, there are questions about like, I got a lot of pushback. I always get pushback on an ongoing basis about my general support for universal healthcare. It's like, well, where I thought you cared about incentives. How can you, how can you care about this? And I do care about, I do care about incentives and I care about, and I know that there are questions about, how do you manage costs? If you have any sort of system where there is no sort of, you don't feel the pain of pricing, then it, stuff gets, you don't have, it's not allocated appropriately. That's absolutely a real concern, but this is where you think big picture, everything is a trade-off. And if my number one concern, big picture, is this sort of bottom-up productivity, and when I say startups, I don't mean startups like Silicon Valley startups, like trying to be a major corporation. I mean small companies, like one or two people, or five people, or 10 people, or maybe 30 people, if it, if it's, if it really takes off. To enable that, we need to get stuff out of the way that 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 hinders that i think so much of that stuff is is really small scale it's like can i pay my rent can i mm-hmm. have my kids not get sick can i can have a good school that the kids can go to during the day and i can work on my business like and i think that's the sort of stuff that government is uniquely positioned to provide again that's even before getting into sort of the risk pools of you know if you have a nationwide risk pool as opposed to a small risk pools and all the sort yeah. of intricacies of healthcare it, it it's a trade off like does that is that the best way to allocate resources well no but you can't allocate resources perfectly everywhere. Apple can't be a great product company and a great services company. There's a trade-off that has to be made. And I think that thinking applies broadly. And whereas the thinking may have been one thing in like 1975, it's a very different thing in 2015 or 2018 when the the world is in a very different place than it was. I think that's exactly it. Uh, and, and from the perspective of incentives, like you think about people and they're inside a big industrial era organization that happens to provide healthcare and they're thinking about going off on their own and doing one of these little startups. And if it, being able to pay rent certainly factors into the decision and what happens if they fail. But if, if healthcare is just a massive part of that and if you take that away, then you are – it is it is it feels like the type of regulation like eliminating the non compete it is taking the taking the advantages of the big incumbents away and giving it to to the small business that maybe hasn't even been started yet there are just so many different things that are shifting so quickly as a result of the internet and we touch on them week after week but you think about the winner take all type type effect and whether you need low taxation rates for people who are making huge amounts of money because they're being carried along by network effects and whether if you raise that tax if you raise taxation on someone who's in that situation do you think they're suddenly going to stop working on a Facebook or a Google or whatever it might be? And and the answer is, of course, they're not. Like the marginal cost is zero. They're going to keep going as as much as they possibly can. It Might it be wise to like recognize that these, uh, using the rainforest analogy, these trees that are really getting to the top, they're growing with so much momentum that there's little you can do to slow them down. So perhaps the tax rates there might need to be higher in order to uh, ensure that there is a thriving ecosystem on the rainforest floor like that's the kind of that's the kind of thinking that needs to happen but it's so different from the industrial era thinking 
And that, that's where, I mean, I love these questions that we were getting asked. And that's where I get frustrated seeing the way that debate's unfolding, because it doesn't feel like there's a, there's a recognition or even an understanding of the way things are playing out right now. Yeah, I mean, I'm a little hesitant to get into tax policy specifically, uh, but I think the the takeaway I would have and the point I would make is the, the go go back to the industrial era. Like, what was your what was your choice realistically? Like, you're like those jobs weren't great, like working on an assembly line or whatever it might be. But what what were you going to do otherwise? Were you like were you going to go start the next big industrial behemoth? No, which was a different, no, you weren't. You were going to sit around and do nothing. And I think in that context, the sort of mindset of having an incentive for people to get a job mm-hmm. it, it was like I think it kind of gets a little bit of a bad rap. I think there's something to it when you think about what were the actual options for people <laughs> at that time, right? But the issue today is not that we need people to take these industrial line jobs that aren't great, but but are necessary. The The option is those jobs are going away. They're disappearing. And not just those jobs, but also all kinds of, you know, when automation hits sort of service sector jobs, those jobs are going to start to go away as well. So the issue is not like we're presenting people the choice between sitting on the couch and doing Doing a drudgerous job. The issue is a choice between wanting a job and it not being available and figuring out how to unleash creativity that is uniquely mm. possible today. The whole entire point is I strongly believe there are all kinds of businesses that are possible today that were not possible in a world where geography limited distribution. You could only serve the immediate area around, around you. When you can serve the entire world, that unlocks so many more possibilities. And I think it has to shift the mindset uh, this is an incentive issue where previously it made sense to think about yeah. the incentives for people to take crappy jobs. But I think that is a ob- increasingly obsolete way of thinking about society yes. broadly. We like we need to incentivize creativity and entrepreneurship, not because people are suddenly different, but because the opportunities are suddenly far greater than they used to be. And oh, by the way, we better get it done because we're going to be in big trouble otherwise because the other the alternative is, isn't there anymore. Yeah, the, the, the idea that you want to prevent people from being idle was the priority. Like, take anything because, like, having people on those, in, in those industrial, on those, on those industrial lines was absolutely critical, but it's not the case anymore. And the priority has shifted to instead of, uh, instead of encouraging people to go from zero into these, uh, into these mass jobs, actually, you would, you would, your priority becomes mitigating risk for people so they feel more comfortable taking risks and expressing creativity like and if you're thinking about encouraging people to go in, into different kind of jobs like one is more like you you might want to apply a little bit more of a stick and a little bit more of a carrot whereas now maybe the better approach is to start to think about providing a net so if people do take risks by themselves and they fall, which invariably they will, because you're getting them to go into creative, creative things, taking risks. They're likely to fail. That they're, they're more likely to do it because the, the the results of failure aren't catastrophic, and they can pick themselves up and try again. And the more opportunities you give to more people to do that, the more great things that there are going to be as a result. Yeah, the way I would think about it is the the internet and its effect on all sorts of businesses. We've discussed ad nauseum. Is it's is a very effective stick at driving people to figure out new ways to make livings yeah and and so to that so the mindset doesn't need to think that we need a stick to get people into like run them through these schools that are just making them good automatons for the future right yeah and plug them into assembly lines and to do work like that mm-hmm. that world and there's all kinds of great things about it going away but the, the mindset of how we think about you know human capital <laughs> if i might use so court so so cold a word, as it were, it has to be totally different. Like, the, the, believe me, the internet is doing a great job of making people feel very uncertain and unsure about their future. <laughs> and so, mm-hmm. what what can we do to to do the opposite? Like, it, it, I mean, it makes sense if the way the internet makes you think about your business, if it changed from controlling supply to controlling demand, if that's the fundamental shift where it's basically turned on its head. It yeah. kind of makes sense that all the other parts of society are turned on their head as well. And I think this is a, a, as good an example as you can have. It doesn't make sense to incentivize people to to to, to do jobs they don't want to do. It makes sense to enable and create the conditions that they will do completely new kinds of jobs that are critical for for society generally. 
Oh, there was oh, before we end. I know we went a little long, but there is one big category that we not just got in this in this mailbag, but I get asked all the time, constantly, and that is what books do I recommend? And I usually don't answer in part because. I'm not always sure what to say. I don't actually read that many books, to be totally frank. And it's not because I don't think books are valuable. I think they're incredibly valuable. And I, I it, it's more that what I I'm so interested in sort of first principles and like I'm more the inputs as opposed to to the outputs. And and you know, for example, the books that I do really like and value greatly are origin story type books about what happened at companies in their earliest days, in part because I think that's such a useful way to understand the ways to make decisions today because what happens early on and the culture that gets built around decision-making and the incentives that are in place from a very early stage, that still matters even if it's a decade on or two decades on or three decades on or whatever it, it might be. And it's more a question of like, what do I spend my time reading and understanding. Mm. So if this isn't a, a diss of books, it's just, I just don't, I don't have a ton of recommendations in part because I feel like I'm more, I'm more a book writer. You know, I don't write a book. I'm more like a book writer mm. than, than a book reader. If that makes sense. Like my job, my job as I see it is I gather up lots of like first principle mm. data and I, I make my own sort of formulation and I articulate it on strategy and, and that's what I do. And, and I respect those that, and I feel a kinship to other book authors in a sense, as opposed to being more of a peer, as opposed to a customer. I don't know. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes total sense. Look, I, when I was in the, like in the process of writing, how will you measure your life? I actually steered clear of other books in a similar genre. And the reason is to try and give myself as much as possible beginner's mind you adopt other ways of thinking other people's thinking so easily if you start reading you're like oh that's a great idea that's a great idea but what you end up doing without even realizing it is crowding out your own thoughts and there's something to be said for having foundational knowledge in a space without necessarily going deep into the space and so given what you just given what you do what you said makes absolutely so much sense to me and that first principles thinking is so much of what I love about your writing and it's what I love about our conversations I, I feel like we come at these things from the perspective of and we have to because there isn't this long history of internet businesses. We come at it from first principles. Now, I will say this. There are a couple of foundational books on first principles that I think people will uh, – that could benefit from. One that I absolutely love is um, is Guns, Germs, and Steel. And it starts off with a, uh, like an anthropologist – uh, in the Pacific, looking at this port, watching all the ships come in, loaded up with cargo and leaving without any. And he's with someone and he's like, well, why do the ships leave? Uh, why do they arrive with all the cargo and leave with none? And he's like, oh, yeah, because it's all produced overseas. But he keeps asking why. Like, why is it that it's overseas? Like, what caused these societies to do well and others not to? And he goes through this deep exploration with this very foundational first principles question. And starting with a question like that and following it to its conclusion was just something that I found transformational. I, that's a great choice. And I would say, in general, the books that I do read and I get the most value from are – this kind of goes back to the founding company books. Those are history books. And, yeah. and I think just history in general and understanding how we got here. And you know, there's that Steve Jobs quote about at the end of the day when you realize everything is man-made. Yeah. It, 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 how empowering that is. But it's also so – like things things are the way they are for a reason. And, and to the extent that I'm interested in understanding that, I in general find just history uh, – for me, that those are the books that I I spend the books I read the most are generally history books by and large, mm. uh, and I think Sapiens is another one that that is uh, mm. in a similar vein to to Germs Guns and Steel. Yeah, but but those sorts of um, that's a little it gets a little hand wavy in big picture, but I think just the the principle of thinking about how we got to where we are and what that says about where we might be going in the future that certainly is is if there's a genre that I do spend time in, it is that. Yeah, totally. And there's there's one other that I think folks that are listening to this might benefit from, and that's one called The Halo Effect by a professor of the name of Phil Rosenzweig. And basically, I mean, what we spend a large part of this podcast talking about is like applying theories and 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 uh, 
business research to the cases of companies and trying to figure out what's happening next and even developing those theories. The thing that I love about the halo effect is that, as we mentioned earlier, business is a social science and there are a lot of charlatans out there pushing a lot of crap. And Rosenzweig will equip you in this book to be able to pick up business research and to think about it in a way where you can figure out for yourself whether it's good research, a good theory, or bad research and bad theory. And that is so valuable because you pick up something like HBR, and don't get me wrong, I love HBR, but you'll read completely conflicting things. Like like one person says, this is the right way to think about it, and another person comes at it from another way that ends up being completely contradictory. How do you figure out the right way to do it? And it's to 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 peer into the approach that the uh, that the person has taken in developing the theory and uh, figuring out how to develop theory the right way and this book is fantastic cuz he it's very accessible he's very straight to the point and he will help you think about this stuff in the right way well i think it, it almost fits in what we're saying though it's like getting back to first principles and mm. and not just skimming off the skimming off the top and I, yeah i mentioned there's almost a theme that maybe that is the theme you know what what's the value in business school like if you actually get in and and understand like the core concepts being delivered or or understand how to manage the environment that you're in these are it's not the surface level like stuff that you see on the surface it's it's getting into what's underneath and that's i think the way that formulating that underlying structure is strategy it's the way you can live a good life it's the way you can form good habits and it's the Mm. way that you know we will survive survive what's coming uh, I'm I'm impressed by that that like threading hey, that, the needle through all those topics. That, that that's wasn't what easy. I do. That's what I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Well, our thanks to our readers for all the questions that we got. I think yeah. we'll try to do another one. I think in the future, particularly if there's a week where I'm not doing a weekly article, uh, this was hmm. definitely fun. I think uh, the shorter questions. I think you mentioned last week. Shorter questions are better. We got yeah. some very long ones, <laughs> which is fine. <laughs> Also, listen to the back catalog if you have not listened to it. But it also our thanks to uh, WordPress.com for sponsoring this episode. It's Again, go to WordPress.com slash exponent to get 15% off your order. And uh, any, anything else to add? I mean, the extension of that question around books that we read, uh, podcasts we listen to, and I, I think I've mentioned it before, but I love telling people that while I do a podcast like this with you, the only thing I listen to in the podcast app is uh, electronic dance music. So uh, <laughs> it, how's that for first principles? No, no one wants to hear about that <laughs> uh, yeah sounds good i will i will talk to you later happy chinese new year mate happy chinese new year see ya bye bye